2001 was the beginning of a, a, a genuine revolution of visual effects. In terms of traditional special effects, it is the pinnacle. You go through the first 70 years, and that is the, the best of the best of special effects movies, and it'll always be. Nobody had put the effort into special effects like Stanley had. Stanley really reinvented the medium. Identification. 2001, A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, pal. We've had the chance to pack pretty much everything, but, you know, Hal has not been very helpful with our packing list because he kind of doesn't want he us to go. He keeps deleting my to-do list. And I don't yeah. know what that's about. I know that's not a malfunction. He's doing this on purpose to antagonize mm-hmm. me. <laughs> and I, and I, I think it's sweet. I think he's just lonely and he's going to miss us. At least I prefer to take it that less insidious way. But obviously sunscreen. We, we've been in climate control or in suits in pretty much absolute zero and the tanning bed broke and the tanning bed broke so there's really this is going to be an adjustment to be in the south of the united states in the middle of the summer for a few days wearing dark t-shirts but we should we should definitely get um, a couple of pairs of fun socks to bring back i only have one pair of socks left without holes anyway so i probably need to get some real ones i only have a pair of christmas socks and Wearing them all year round kind of diminishes the cheer of them. Wes's parents, can you please keep sending him Christmas socks? Because at maybe in before Christmas, in fact, a few pairs. Can you just in advance send a few Christmases ahead? Maybe enough for two? Because it's getting a little desperate up here. But we'll be in your neck of the woods. Give us a shout at Space Podacy. Tweet us, Facebook. Email us at spacepolicy2001 at gmail. Um, Let us know if you're coming. Let us know if you're there and you're looking for us. We'll be having a blast. Probably trying to find Kevin, our buddy from last year, uh, who taught us a whole lot about vintage collecting. We'll probably make some new friends. Speaking of yes. toys and collectibles, I just saw recently that a independent um, toy maker, they're um, putting a very small line of 2001 Space Odyssey figurines out. Really? Yes. Wow. So there is a... We've been um, waiting our whole lives for this. a scale TMA-0. There's also, uh, of course, a, a pool in Bowman. The... Seven... Is this Entertainment Earth? Seven something. Super Seven. Super, Super seven. seven. Super Seven's a great boutique uh, collectible maker. They've done alien figurines oh, and okay. aliens figurines. They did the Willow figures released for the new show, but oh. featuring the characters of the I movie. Gotcha. Oh, they're fantastically oh, detailed too. These. Oh, and your ape, you get a you get two heads. Oh, I you didn't get, see the apes. You get look oh. four sets of hands. You got fisted. 
closed, open fist. You oh got hands reaching oh out. You got hands that and can grab onto two bones. They have the tool. They have two two tools. Two tools. And, it, and that's with the monolith. The ape comes with the monolith. Wow. Dave comes with an extra head and an extra helmet, swappable, slightly morbid. He also comes, look, his sketch pad. Are you kidding? His tiny little sketch pad. Oh, my goodness. Two and sets it's got of, the drawing on it. Two extra sets of hands, one for choking Frank with and the other one for um, <laughs> uh, holding this uh, HAL monitor here that comes with... Oh, it's got one of the uh, oh, spec screens on it. Which it's one got is the it? spec screen of the AE35. Of course. Beautiful. And it's going into failure. <laughs> the Franklin is gorgeous. The Franklin comes with a, an extra screaming head. I love that. And he comes with the AE35 unit in its portable typewriter box. And then you have two extra sets of hands. Again, one for choking how. And then we got Dr. Floyd who comes in his moon suit and a sandwich. He gets his sandwich with a bite taken me. out of it. He also gets a, a swappable head with a with a being blasted with the, the dubstep that is TMA zero one. And again, two swappable sets of hands. Look at them all perched together like that. You can make a diorama of everybody. Uh, well, I'm just gonna go ahead and say, like, if my parents are listening to this episode, <laughs> forget the socks. Bur- birthday the and Christmas are are still on the side of the year. So um, I love the sandwich. So which would you which did he get the chicken? Or the... I thought it was a ham sandwich. The ham. You got the I think ham. it was a ham. Pretty sure. Yeah. Crumbs everywhere. <laughs> and look at though, it's crustless. I think it was, was crustless it? in the movie because it's in that little... Um, it is crustless. Aluminum foil. It certainly is. This is like a, a, a petite... You know, tea, <laughs> petite it's like a tea sandwich. sandwich. Yes, it is a tea sandwich. <laughs> Maybe that's okay. It's a really soft bread. It's not going to be real crumbly. You know, it's no, it's held together mostly by on mayonnaise. The roof of your mouth, exactly. <laughs> yeah, most of those tea sandwiches aren't just mayonnaise suspended by bread. Well, that was going to be one of the things. Wait a minute, this is from 2021. So maybe they're out. Oh, boy. They might be out already. Okay. One of the things that I was, you know, wanting to compare as far as deployment of a film, a lot of uh, 2001 was media related and advertising, but there wasn't physical product, you know. (laughs) Kenner wasn't, you know, licensing the likenesses (laughs) of (laughs) a cure delay, you know, at this point. So (laughs) the $6 million man was the extent of it. Yeah. And, and probably Davy Crockett, right? Or Daniel Boone, one. Really? One of those is the Disney show that's in color. One of mm. those is a Disney TV show in color that Not a whole generation grew Was it with. Daniel Boone, maybe? I think it was the Daniel Boone show. And I've never seen it, though. Uh, there's a ton of merch for that and the Monsters. Huh. And those are pretty much it for TV. Well, it just seems like a real Star missed Trek. opportunity because mm-hmm. a pod, yeah, a discovery. Absolutely. I mean... There's so many cool things that could have been easily marketed, but I guess maybe looking at the, the audience, yeah, they saw the movie and they just like we're going to be lucky if <laughs> anybody stays, <laughs> much less kids, because you do have like the soundtrack was huge. 
you can say one thing. I mean, I've got the soundtrack at home. Mm -hmm. Like, we may have just answered our own question about the merchandising for 2001 because they will have... Right. Movie tie-ins. It mm, didn't exist. Basically non-existent. That's why they gave George Lucas the keys to the kingdom without realizing it because, okay, yeah, fine. Knock yourself out on making screen print t-shirts and a couple of figures. Mm -hmm. Congratulations and good luck with that because they weren't going to help him with that. That's his... You want to make money off that? Fine. You take the merchandising rights and go with it. And he did. But any time before that, it was just not going to happen. Now we were talking about Independence Day. Just then, you have Independence Day, you have Apollo 13, you have Congo, which, as I recall, was an R-rated guerrilla attack movie. Yes. <laughs> All had kids' toy tie-ins at kids' meals at fast food Yes, joints. I was about to say, I had a, oh, I hope I'm correct in saying this, I think it was Burger King. It was the Gorilla's Eye holographic wristwatch. Oh, I've got it too! Yeah! I, nice. I love that watch. <laughs> they were they were so great, yeah. um, but that film, completely inappropriate for children. Oh, yeah, and of course somebody, that made me want to see Speaking of the, the eye, movie, so. somebody's eyeball gets ripped out and tossed onto the like center of a scene, and it just kind of <laughs> zooms into it. Which just comes <laughs> in the kids' meal as a boiled egg. Right, yep. yeah. Uh, the breakfast menu only till 11. <laughs> Nothing like that existed before Star Wars. So with them, it was Burger King, and I think Burger Chef was the other big mm. one for Star Wars, right? So the Return of the Jedi That's right, glasses. the glasses, the collector's set. Ooh, so nice. Love to get a set of those. And um, wasn't there a negotiation like a contract negotiation maybe through Lucas for one of his employees that basically didn't want to take a salary. They only wanted a percentage of the toy sales as compensation <laughs> for their work. And uh, could you imagine even just I like know. 1%? <laughs> Amazing. I hope they got some nice cash and probably retired very early. <laughs> well, when, you know, Fox shut down the movie, Fox made Alan Ladd Jr. pull the plug, even though he was rooting for him in the boardroom pretty much alone because uh, it was over schedule, over budget, way behind. And they'd already asked for another six months to finish the effects. Mm. So they canned it. And George had to go to Alec Guinness and Alec Guinness secured a loan and paid for the rest of production out of his own mm. pocket. And in exchange for that, George gave him a percentage I don't know how many percentage points of the movie, really? which made Alec Guinness rich oh, for the rest of his life. Fantastic. Great In, investment. If anyone deserves, yes. goodness gracious, Sir Alec Guinness. And it was points from... He knighted, right? The, yes. He's knighted. Yes, yeah. Sir Alec indeed. And, and I think it was points from the merch, actually, that he was getting... So amazing. Yeah, he may have hated when kids came up to him, <laughs> but Burger King presents Return of the Jedi classes. Four new classes from the Star Wars saga. Filled with the adventures of Luke Skywalker, the Ewoks, Han Solo, 
and Jabba the Hutt. Buy a medium or large coat, and a different class is yours each week for a special price. Collect all four. Return of the Jedi glasses, now appearing only at Burger King. What do you think it would be, though, in 2001, like, if there had been a, a McDonald's tie-in or something for Happy... What would you well, like okay, to see? Well, okay, the holographic wristwatch, easy answer, Hal. I yeah. mean, that, that would have been super cool, just like a red holographic mm-hmm. lens that you could what kind of... What if you could have made that in 68? Uh, you probably 68. could. It may have just been a... a um, Did they have... Um, oh, man, what are they... What is it called when they have the uh, the images that shift? Yeah, it's not linotype. It's, it's, it's something like that. I wonder, though. That's the question, because if they did, that would be the answer, right? That would have to be it. Yeah. At the very least, like holographic, silvery, aluminum stuff. Probably had that for ball cards, I yeah. think. Like embossing uh, gilt, like metal gilding. Or um, it could have been... Could have been cards. Were, were, um, cards. were codexes still popular? Like the mail-in sweepstakes? Good thing? point. You know, like, oh, yeah. 12's UPCs, and yes. you get the secret codex, and you can decode. Serial. Now, a, a HAL codex ring or something like that, that would have been... Ooh. That could have been very cool. Very cool. And you could uh, get uh, messages from <laughs> the A thirty five unit. They never unscrambled them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just assume it's offline again. What would the world? What would a world be like if kids grew up going to two thousand and one world? Repeat? Oh, world. Yeah, like a like a amusement, amusement park. park. <laughs> would you basically be in? Oh no! You would have to be the centrifuge, wouldn't it? That's a that's an IP they haven't touched. No, I mean no, and I hope they never do. Yeah, truthfully, I yeah. mean, God forbid a reboot. Right. <sighs> Sorry, I just right. yeah. <laughs> I died no, a little bit. Absolutely. Inside. Yeah, that 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 would be like oh no 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 remaking the Godfather yes. or something like that. You can, yes. you just you don't do that. Yeah. What would be interesting would be to see if somehow like a. Maybe a new generation? Well, 3001, Never. Ridley's got the option. Does he really? Yeah, he's, he's it got was it given for to a couple him. more years. I think he optioned it himself. I think maybe Scott Free worked up a, at least a production Bible for it. Maybe not even that. I'm but. pretty well familiar with 2010. 3000, not so much. And that was the one that basically, it was like a hanging chad <laughs> of the, the film series, unfortunately. It was there. I mean, ready to go. Yeah. Um, Arthur C. Clarke just lighting his typewriter, keyboard, e-processor on fire, uh, whatever he was using at the time. I wonder if Arthur C. Clarke ever used one of those e-typewriters. He was using IBM laptops. Okay, he was, that's even more impressive. He would when the like the prototypes before they were on the market. Peter Himes somehow they worked it out to where they were able to co-write the script through email in 1983. No way. And there's great footage of it in the featurette for 2010 through like an intranet sort of situation because at that point you it was kind of like a phone you had to have a number so arthur like a fax yeah yeah yeah. arthur c clark had you know so he could stay in sri lanka and peter himes could work from la and it's crazy because when i think about arthur c clark i guess disconnection from that era 
even though his ideas were so cutting edge and i mean he was so succinct with his mm -hmm. descriptions of electronics and uh future technology mm -hmm. that eventually did come to be of course he's going to be like a tech freak yeah. he's going to be looking at all the prototypes he, he's the dude that has the kitchen of the future i guarantee right. it <laughs> absolutely oh it'd be so fascinating to see the monumental task of bringing 2010 to the screen began in may 1983 when writer-director Peter Hyams started work on the screenplay. During the script-writing process, Hyams and Clark exchanged ideas via computer link-up between Hyams' office in Los Angeles and Clark's home in Sri Lanka. I was, uh, of course, very interested in seeing what the screenplay would be like as compared to the novel. And indeed, he had done one or two things which I told him at the time I would have probably incorporated in the novel. Maybe the best way of collaboration is for the two people on opposite sides of the world not to see each other until it's all over. The monolith was essentially a teaching machine. In fact, our original idea was to have something with a transparent screen on which images would appear, which would, you know, teach the apes, you know, what we, you know, how to fight each other, how to maybe even make fire. But that was much too naive an idea. So eventually we sort of bypassed it and just a device which we didn't explain, but it affected their minds directly. You know, when they, they touched it and things happened to their brains and they were transformed. This was one of the first films that had costume design that was so realistic that it was, in fact, thought to be real apes instead creature of... Creature costume, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The creature costumes. Stuart Freeborn worked so hard to make people, you know, who, who are all basically short, slim men into varying body sizes and padding and things into the suits that fit. You, you don't see a seam. You don't see any lines or any no. place where there would you, be a You can't tell. Like, shoulder pads. They're not having a smoke break with the ape head off. The, they're fully inside of this. This is probably a, a several hour operation to get them seen ready. Mm -hmm. And he... Of course they think, are because there's pictures of it. But. Right. <laughs> um, I, I think Freeborn was one of the first to take it to such a realistic, believable level that the cogs in Lucas's mind start whirring and spinning frantically. He, he has an idea of what he wants to do with this new sci-fi film, but previous uh, monster and costume effects were just rudimentary comparatively. So I imagine that after seeing how that can be applied and how well-received it was, he wanted a piece of that action, so Stuart Freeborn was a must-have. He had to catch that Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> and while he was responsible for a lot of Cantina creatures, and George wasn't satisfied with the number, because quite frankly, Freeborn had quite enough beginning on with, thank you very much, without all of those characters, that then, of course, he came back and had to reshoot inserts with Rick Baker and, and Phil Tippett and John Burke to make new stuff and bring some of their own... <clears throat> But do you think Freeborn was one of the first kind of coaches for what was a predecessor to someone like Andy Serkis that becomes such a kind of iconic creature actor, you know, giving them lessons on how to lumber about when they're in these costumes and how to interact with each other and not make it seem... That's a good question, because it seems anyway. like most of that work with the ape costumes was Moonwatcher, wasn't it? It was uh, Dan Richter, 
um, who took it upon himself to kind of train the others in Crash Course in Monkey Mime. Or monkey Mime. Monkey or. Mime, yeah. <laughs> well, when you were talking about that before you even said it, I was thinking Mime. Yeah. Because that's really what they're doing. They're not able to speak. Mm-hmm. Their communication is all through that's body. That's who they hired uh, to do it. Body language. So that's very impressive. I think it was really just a sadistic desire to force a bunch of mimes in 105 degree heat to eat raw meat in fur costumes. Do you think they were driving around in a pickup truck uh, with a you know uh, help wanted kind yeah. of sign? Yeah. What I was looking for always was people I could, I could get to act a little bit because I understood that the movement wasn't the solution. The, the solution was to motivate the movement. Stanley had given me a small Beaulieu camera, an 8mm camera. Um, And so I would come to the zoo alone every day to sort of ponder and what, and and Guy became a friend of mine, and I would sit in front of his cage and talk to him about it and whatnot. I built the choreography from different animals, different parts of the body, at different speeds. We would all do a ballet class. Then Dan would set us these mime exercises, stretch exercises, and all the interacting, and then it went from there. And as, as he said earlier, we then were brought up to the zoo to watch things, to study the apes, and then to get our own interpretation of it. I needed to understand who these man apes were. It's like the uh, Seven Dwarfs, Sleepy. You know, they have to be clear characters. I could do that with Moonwatcher, that wasn't a problem. Uh, but I, I was very aware that the other apes had to be, you had to know who they were. This was a, a sort of a nervous guy, but it was very big, but he was nervous all the time, and, and sometimes he got upset, and you know. So that would be a character, you know, or a guy that it was always watching out because people always just treated him badly, and you know. So Stanley and I were very aware of that, that we created very specific characters. You know, when you did th- that moment of aimlessly fiddling with some bones and then suddenly that one piece goes up. And it, you, you ever watch a, an animal where you'll really surprise it, the animal goes, just that much? That's what he does. It's like you got the moment when the penny drops. Yeah. And it's, it's so clear and it's brilliant. Yeah, well thank you very much, Kier. I, I thought, this guy's never picked a bone up before. He, you know, he's not that bright to start with. And uh, actually, figure out how to use this thing. So I played it very slowly, very, you know, very tentative. And and I started playing with the bone and just one little bone flipped up in the air, just a little bit. And I, Stanley and I were talking to each other because we were shooting without sound and I had the mask on so you didn't see my lips moving. So I said, oh, I'm sorry about that, Stanley. He said, no, 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 I like it, I like it. (laughs) That, we developed that. And finally, into and we still, by the time the last shot, when I was breaking things and, we still didn't have the throwing of the bone, and it's Stanley and Arthur were walking back from the rostrum where I was doing that last shot one afternoon, and Stanley picked up a stick and started playing with it, and he got it. And the next day, we just threw bones, you know. <laughs> so what were we dealing with? Fact or fin- fiction? This was a film with a fantastic concept. It was a dream, an open-ended research project with no apparent budget restrictions. It took Stuart and me several months to to find out what Stanley wanted, what he would accept, and what would work on camera. 
there's this there's a little um there's a little sidebar here Jonathan Wilkins says that creating the apes of Kubrick's 2001 required plenty of tests before makeup was perfected. One of the actors who the Freeborns worked with was British comedy actor Ronnie Corbett, who was a model for some of the early tests, but did not appear in the completed film. Now, if you've never seen Ronnie Corbett, he's like four and a half feet tall. Oh, wow. He's a really great comedian. He was with this guy, Ronnie Barker, for years of the two Ronnies, and he also shows up in the 1967 Casino Royale spoof as this guy with a little mechanical heart that zips around everywhere like a wind-up toy. <laughs> <laughs> um, excuse me, I wonder if you can help me. I'm having some trouble finding a book. Oh? Yes, they all seem to be... They all seem to be mixed up. Mixed up? <laughs> Look all right to me? <laughs> all the red books over there, all the blue books over there. <laughs> You don't classify books by the colour. Oh, yes, it's the architect's idea. He said it looked neater. <laughs> well, neater it may be, but it doesn't make it easy to find the book you want, does it? Ah, well, maybe I can help you. So what book exactly did you want, sir? Well, it's called The Twisted Spur by E.M. Haggerty. Right, Haggerty. <coughs> Haggerty, Haggerty. Haggerty, Haggerty. Hennessy, Tennessee. Hennessy, Haggerty, Haggerty. Haggerty, Haggerty. There he is, Haggerty. Haggerty. Spur twisted thee. <laughs> Haggerty E.M. It's a green book. <laughs> right back there with all the green books. But there are thousands of green books there. I mean, they're... oh well, naturally they are subdivided. Oh good. All the big books are on the bottom. All the little books are on the top. <laughs> all the big books on the bottom. The little books on the top. Yes. What are you? A little one or a big one? <laughs> I don't know. Do I? You're not being very helpful, are you, sir? I'm not being very helpful. How are we supposed to find books if you file them like that? Well, I've never had any trouble. Only this very morning, I found just the book I wanted, just like that. What was that? A big red one. (laughs) Where are you going? No, wait till here! Come here, you big coward. Chewy, come here. Listen, I don't know who you are or where you came from, but from now on, you do as I tell you. Okay. Look, your worshipfulness, let's get one thing straight. I take orders from just one person, me. Hmm, so one day you're still alive. Will somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way? No reward is worth this. Right. With because he had so much to be going to be doing just with Chewbacca, making that a realistic creature, because Chewie is you know, it, it doesn't ever like, what do you, feel like a suit. It doesn't. It, it Part reads, of that's Peter Mayhew. It, Peter Mayhew, again, like a wonderful creature actor. Uh, because if you just walked around mm-hmm. like an Imperial, yeah. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Um, but the, the costume never reads as a costume. You really you see him in his full kind of like strangely enlarged humanoid state and yeah. accept it. Again, no seams, no pads, no zippers. You're not seeing anything that looks like an entry point. Or no. A... And it looks like he uh, takes really good care of his fur and yeah. combs it, it every day. Yes. <laughs> He's very kept. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Went up and saw George and... And they just said to you, you're just basically going to be this character with a lot of hair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
And so you weren't allowed, the one thing Chewbacca doesn't do is talk. That's right. So all of what we feel from him comes from like movements and yeah. you played in every Star Wars movie. All three of them. All three of them. All the Chewbaccas. Yep. You are Chewbacca. I'm Chewbacca. You are Chewbacca. You say though that there's a lot of your personality in Chewbacca, like what? You look at the chess game uh -huh. in Star Wars, uh -huh. when Tony says it's unadvisable to let to upset a Wookiee, Wookie because you've got to let a Wookiee win, and he goes like that. Yeah. And that's what you do? You do that a lot? And all around, all around the set afterwards, let the Wookiee win became a byword for any problem. Yeah, no problem, let the Wookiee win. <laughs> let the Wookiee win. Freeborn really as a coach really instead of being a coach i guess what you could say is he is the ultimate tailor to the artist by creating a material that you can act in yeah that confines you to the character that you're playing so but frees you up for expression you look at planet of the apes and you've got this halloween store kind of yeah. rubber mask situation going on with everybody's just wearing clothes jaws are and flapping <laughs> around yeah. and jiggling and shaking and it never feels realistic in a way that's believable, not that, you know, right. <laughs> humanoid. It reads as a costume, yeah. like 100%. And, and Freeborn was definitely one of the first that, that could take for it. And then to go on to do Chewbacca, but also um, Return of the Jedi, I mean, the Ewoks, one of the most beloved creatures in the series. And, uh, you know, even had their own... <laughs> crazy spinoffs mm, mm, mm. uh, live action and animated but yeah. so i think he, he really is the father of the um furry humanoid critter an attempt was made to articulate the jaws and eyes of some of the creatures mouth and jaw movements were experimented with Latex masks, later covered with fur, became one part of an unusual six-part suit. The head, the body proper, fitted over a sculpted foam rubber frame, two hands, and two feet. But building Ewoks was sort of like putting a bicycle together on Christmas Eve. Stuart Freeborn discovered they did not work the way he planned. Along with producer Howard Kasangian, he was faced with too much roly, too much poly. Overfurred and overfoamed, the Ewoks found it difficult to move. Freeborn had to redesign the Ewoks' feet, making them softer, more flexible. The Ewoks, of course, designed as basically miniature Wookiees since originally you know, Wookiees were going to be the the Viet Cong in this allegorical tale. Originally, Star Wars was. And Kashyyyk was too expensive to rent that day, so yeah, they, right. they went with the moon of Endor. Yes. They couldn't have gotten further away from the galactic core. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. and but could you imagine Shrewook instead of Ewokies? You might not have had Grandma Vodka. The Ewok language is really derivative of Kalmyk which is a language that comes out of Asia in the kind of areas of central China. I saw a documentary on television that interviewed some people in this region of China, some nomadic tribesmen. And I thought, wow, this language is very interesting. It, it has a, something we haven't heard before. It seems like it would be something good for the Ewoks. <laughs> Ah, 
So we began to look around and see if we could find anyone that spoke this language. Of course, there wasn't offhand anybody immediately available since it came from a remote part of the world. But we finally, through some research, came into contact with some refugees who had come from that part of China. And in particular, an elderly woman, she was probably in her 80s, was brought to us. She didn't speak any English. She had recently immigrated from primitive regions of China. She had lived in a tribe as uh, some kind of a quasi-nomadic existence all her life. And she probably didn't really understand what we were trying to do in recording her voice for a movie. But we approach these things by usually bringing the person into the studio. And I sit down with them. And you get her to tell stories. This is usually how I do it. A person who's not an actor, you know, you just don't put a microphone in front of them and say, okay, talk. You usually want to put them in ease and give them something to do. So what I found with her and what I've done with other native people was to sit down with them and have them tell me folk tales and to pretend they were telling me stories, uh, bedtime stories, as if I was a child. And they can tell me a story in which they may do the voices of different characters and they can inject a sense of drama into what they're saying. Hello, I think. I could be mistaken, they're using a very primitive dialect, but I do believe they think I am... She wanted a bottle of vodka, and uh, we provided that for her, and she got very lucid and gave us some wonderful sounds. We referred to this woman as Grandma Vodka, because we couldn't pronounce her real name. And a session in the studio with her uh, gave us not only the inspiration, but gave us the basis for a lot of the Ewok voices. We were able to take recordings that she gave us of her laughing, of her telling stories, of her doing little character voices, high and low. And out of that came a range of sounds, both male and female voices, which provided the basis for the Ewok language. Yeah, furry, the father of what you can perform in, in not only fur, but also in puppet form. Because what is Stuart Freeborn's most enduring creation? His own image, Yoda himself. Yoda. You got that drawing from Los Angeles, didn't you? Yes, yes. There were quite a few hundreds made, I think. Finally, he was selected. And uh, then from that, we uh, have to make something that looks pretty realistic. But first of all, a puppet was made to get some idea what it would look like in, in three dimensions rather than just a drawing. And this little fella was made purely for that. And as you can see, he's quite an interesting little character. But now he is a puppet, so we now have to make uh, the, what we hoped to appear to be the real thing rather than just a puppet. I remember Stuart was under the gun, and it was very tense, very tense. We had to get this thing done. We've got to start shooting with Yoda. And so <laughs> while we were talking to him, I just had Yoda's head, and I was just playing with it, and I, and I dropped and it cracked. <laughs> so here we are, you know, this is extra, and then, then Stuart said, I need a drink. <laughs> so it was terrible, because here we're pressing so much, and I'm the one who screwed it up. But for Frank Oz, too, the freed up to 
do as much as you can with the face, especially. And that, that takes uh, not only skill and artistry, which he also had, but a, know a knowledge of materials yes. that is unsurpassed. And they couldn't have been in better hands as far as that goes. Some of the early prototypes for him were terrifying. And yeah. One of them looks like Irvin Kirshner. <laughs> oh, man. Of course, Irvin Kirshner sounds a little bit like Yoda, if you think about <laughs> it. Now came the day of shooting, and we were on Dagobah. And... Yoda sat there and talked. I said, you know what? I've got to make him come alive. I got an idea. I said, let him be like a willful little child. He wants to try everything. He wants to try the food. It's my dinner. <coughs> he wants to see what he's carried along. Hey, get out of there. He goes into the bag. No. He starts throwing things. He wants to try the flashlight. Fine, or I will help you not. R2-D2 wants it. They have a little fight. He beats on the tin can. Fine. All this is improvised. But when they finally dialed in that balance of creature, humanoid, and like a little bit of uh, cuteness for lack of brevity, I mean... Yoda, even though he's 900 years old at this point, uh, he's still a you know a little peach, and you can't help but be endeared by his small stature and, and mighty spirit. But yeah, that that design I think went through a lot of transformations that led to it, and the facial complexion, the proportion size, and the animation of the creature proved so impactful, like the apes, you know? Yeah, there is a lot of facial complexity to both Yoda and Chewie. I mean, the facial complexity of the Ewoks is there too, but mostly it's Warwick's tongue doing a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> it was amazing. It was. Trouble is, uh, most of the Ewoks did, I have to say, look the same. You know, they're strange eyes. They were meant to be animated, weren't they, originally? Uh, animatronic eyes, that didn't happen. But you stuck out for two reasons. You were the, the tiniest Ewok, and you were the only person who actually animated your face. And if we can get a close-up now, because the only thing you could do, not the eyes, do you know where we're going with this? Okay, can we go into a close-up here of Warwick? I don't know, but... Um... Okay, so, the only bit of Wicket that still lives is this bit. Uh... There was my actual tongue I could get through between the teeth, which actually, as Antti says, brought the face to life. You tried that with 3PO, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I did. out. <laughs> didn't go so well. There's something, too, right, where you can read so much into the expressions of each of those characters. And it's one you thing. You know, forehead. Yes. I mean, it's a tome in and of itself. It is. <laughs> It's Einstein's wrinkles, right? That was one of the, uh, he, he is pretty much a caricature, you know, more or less. Uh, after the initial prototypes were kind of deemed a little too creepy. I mean, they were mm -hmm. terrifying. Let's not be. Yeah, they <laughs> let's are. Let's not be around the bush. <laughs> they were pretty scary. They're not endearing. But it, it's kind of like it comes with this knowing uh, look and this, um kind of regalness to him and I, I think maybe that is a, a cultural zeitgeist mm -hmm. more than anything but it feels way more humanoid and and something that relatable 100% and you can see Yoda's such an empath he is all about feeling he's about the living force that's why he 
chose Dagobah's his uh, yes. <laughs> hospice care, essentially. Always thinking, meditating, considering. So he's got to be able to see through you and focus on you, mm-hmm. which he does. Because once you strip away your hopes and fears and any kind of emotional baggage, I mean, all of that really clouds your perception and actions. So The ultimate test of whether it translates emotionally on the screen has already been proven through Yoda and Chewbacca, mm-hmm. two of the most beloved characters on the planet in fiction, period. And Chewbacca doesn't even speak English. Yeah. Every, every child in the world... Or basic. The, yeah, basic. It's one thing to draw these things, and even to sculpt them, but to then create that out of materials... That are that not only you can get away with, but are functional, day after day, performable. Yeah, and yeah exactly. Enough. Allow the actor to show through the costume. You don't want them to be so laden down that it diminishes their movement. Um, you know, it, it kills expression. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you already can't see their, their face for the most part. They're either using a lot of uh, what do they call it? Helmet, helmet acting? No, no, no. What's it called? There's um, there's a specific thing. Yeah, I think it is helmet helmet acting oh, where it's a little exaggerated right but it's because mm-hmm. you're not able to your your expressions are veiled which we've seen a lot in mandalorian season Absolutely. three with so many so a lot of the time when those characters are speaking with their mask on you get a lot of head nods mm-hmm. and they're looking they're making sure that the camera is following their gaze uh and their expressions are usually a little more animated with you know either hands or something like that uh or you know you can dial it way down and yeah. go super cold mm-hmm. and those micro Minimalist. those micro expressions yes. that come across mm-hmm. really well in a full suit just the slightest like that turn. too Absolutely. So I think that's a that's an interesting. Um, well, it is. I guess in the, in our case with these cats all have masks on, and I don't know how much. I mean, there is dark makeup applied around the eyes, both in the case of the ape actors and in Peter Mayhew. Uh, so you darken up the eyelids to blend in with. The, the mask beginning that of the way piece. you don't get that weird again like halloween store mm-hmm. effect <laughs> but when it all comes together what's i guess really what's the best litmus test for whether or not it's natural and conveys the emotion is when you can't not only can the audience not tell the critics can't tell either even the apes can't tell you got little baby apes falling asleep in the arms of these actors in these suits and these little baby chimps would never know that these are not absolutely i mean incredible it's probably because of all the festering meat that was applied <laughs> just like mommy <laughs> right they developed the taste for man flesh yes. <laughs> three years later everybody comes back to work and everybody's sort of more enthusiastic than they were the first time the first time everybody was very confused by the whole thing and didn't know what they were up against now they had a better picture of what it was we were making you know it was fun to get started again there's a new dance doing the tauntaun 
three steps like this and then fall over. <laughs> How can they laugh in this weather? There are challenges about any movement. The snowstorm was the worst storm in history. Snow is coming. They couldn't get the train in there, so Harrison couldn't get on the set, you know, until a week later. So they could barely shoot. We shot like 20 feet outside the hotel. Four weeks into shooting, they were already on their schedule. And the bank was also saying, we're not going to give you any more money. And we were stuck. It was a tough situation. That's a movie of horror, movie animal. Good. Now look back and you see it. There. In fact, they were shooting The Empire Strikes Back at the same time they were shooting The Shining. Yeah, that's really tough for me to swallow for some reason. They, they seem totally different age, uh, you know, kind of productions. Yeah. But wow, yeah, imagine. <laughs> Apparently, and there's some shots in Norway for the exteriors of Hoth where if you were to tilt the camera 45 degrees to the right up more of the hill you would see the, the hotel the facade for the wow. hotel yeah <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> and then they were shooting they were both shooting uh, on stage together back at studio really Kubrick had his stages and of course Lucasfilm had theirs and Robert Watts would pass by in the halls and greet him you know hey you know and they'd catch up that's fantastic so that was kind of it. And of course, that wasn't the only person to catch up with. He had David Prowse there playing Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, David Prowse, you know, is in Clockwork Orange as the boyfriend of the writer. I was actually doing a part which um, I really never ever bargained for. Um, Stanley came up to me and said, Look, you know, this is the bit where you carry Patrick McGee in his wheelchair down the stairs. Um, and then at the end of the scene, you, you actually put him down onto the floor and then wheel him into the table. And then you go around and sit at the table. And then, there's, then there is a dialogue scene. And um, it's a very, very famous scene. It's where Alex is, drinks the drug wine and eventually kills over into the spaghetti. Um, and, and Patrick McGee is a, is a fantastic, fa fantastic actor. Very, very intense, uh, very, very intense scene. And so I said to Stanley, I said, I said, you, you know, you can't be serious about this, are you? I mean, you want me to carry Patrick McGee, who must weigh 170 odd pounds, plus the wheelchair, which is probably another 30 pounds. I said, you're asking, asking me to carry three, 200 pounds uh, or, or like 100 kilos down the stairs. I have to put him onto the floor, wheel him into the table and then, and then go and hold a dialogue scene, you see. And he said, yeah, you can do it, you see. And I said, yeah, I know, but your name is not one take Kubrick, is it, you see? And the whole scene, the whole set went quiet, you know. I'd actually called Stanley one take Kubrick, you see. And, uh, and he just smiled, he just laughed it off. I think everything, everybody thought I was going to get the sack, you know, there and then. And, uh, but he just laughed it off and he said, well, he said, we'll, we'll, we'll shoot this as, um, um, as, as, as quickly as we possibly can. And I think we shot it in about six takes. But the, the funny thing was, was they, they decided at the beginning of the scene to give us neck mics. And, um, and, and of course, you know, carrying somebody down the stairs is a very strenuous job, you know. And it was like three flights of stairs and then putting him down on the floor, wheeling him into the table, going back and sitting down. And then, of course, I have to sit down and, and look as though it was nothing. I look as though what I've just done is just you know, a matter of course, you see. But, but by the time you get to the, by the time you've finished all that, you know, you're beginning to puff and blow, you see. So, uh, so I, 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 I did it the first time. And I got to the got to the I got to the seat, sat down at the table, and I'm I'm a, a little bit out of breath, you know, and I'm and I'm there sort of trying not to show it, and so I'm there. This sort of thing, you know, trying not to show that it was any effort. And Stanley says, oh, there's some terrible noises coming over the neck mics. He said, let's change all the neck mics, you see. So with that, they've changed the neck mics and we go and shoot the scene over again, you see. So 
and it was in within like minutes like you said after doing the first time so we do it the second time and so of course the second time by the time i've done it the second time i'm now beginning to get a bit more blowing you see so i'm there going <laughs> you see? and stanley comes out again he says change all the neck mics he said there's terrible noises coming over the neck mics again you see so we change the neck mics for, for the second time and then, uh, and then we do it the third time, and then I sit down again. And because this, by this time, I'm, I'm absolutely shattered, you know. And I sit down, and I'm there going. <laughs> Stanley comes out. He says, "Oh, he said I can see what it is now." And with that, we uh, he said they took the neck mics off, and uh, we shot the scene without neck mics. Check this out in Star Wars Insider issue 108, dealing with Darth by Jonathan Wilkins, who was the editor of Insider for a long, long time. Interview with the great David Prowse who says, I met George Lucas at the 20th Century Fox offices in Soho Square, London. He had seen me in A Clockwork Orange, in which I had appeared some years before, and he said, I'm doing this film called Star Wars, which is a big space adventure, and I'd like to offer you one of two parts. David Prowse, how did a West Country boy get to be one of the nastiest men in the galaxy? It's amazing, isn't it? I, I, was, I, I was sat at home one day and I got a phone call from my agent saying, can I go and see George Lucas? And I went up to the 20th Century Fox office and George said, look, I've got, I'm making this film, which is a sort of space fantasy, and I've got two parts I'd like you to consider. And I said, well, tell me what they are. And he said, well, the first part's a part of a character called Chewbacca. I said, what in the hell is Chewbacca? And he said, it was like a furry-type gorilla that goes through the film on the side of the goodies. And I, thought, I turned my nose up. I thought, well, I don't fancy sort of, you know, three months in a, in a gorilla skin. I said, what's the other one? And he said, well, the other one's the big villain of the film. I said, say no more, George. I'll take it. <laughs> and he said, well, you would never regret this decision. And this is the result. You know, just to be clear, David Prowse being the, <clears throat> the physical actor of Darth Vader. Prowse's uh, helmet and suit acting is bar none. I see you're wearing your trusty, what's it called, oh, lightsaber? That's, that's the lightsaber, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that the one you use in the movie? Um, that's not, no, that's not the one I use, but it's very, very, very similar. Um, in the first, the first ones that we used on the first film, um, they had a very fast revolving motor in, inside. It's almost like a double-handled torch, you know. And then, then they put this sort of carbon rod, uh, about four foot long, which was the actual um, lightsaber itself. And then they, re they put reflective tape over the um, over the rod, and then as soon as you switched on, the whole thing revolved very fast and looked as though it was pulsating. On the one that we've just finished, they, they, or the, on the original ones, they were very, very fragile. You know, Sir Alec Guinness himself were fighting merrily away, and every time they clashed, you know, you'd pick up the bits off the floor, and so you kept, you know, you kept on having to start and stop and start. And indeed, and stop. you picked up the bits of Sir Alec Guinness I off I the floor. Up, picked up Sir Alec Guinness ones off the floor as well. I've been waiting for you, Obi Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Darth. I looked like an actor with voice, what do you call it, lip syncing. But there was no lip, so I was lucky. I just watched his, his body language and... and um, in the second one, uh, Kirchner, uh, because by now David Prowse knew his voice was not going to be used, so he just sort of threw, threw the lines in. And Kirchner gave me a soundtrack with him doing the voice of Darth Vader. Kirchner's voice is like this, and you, you know, and, uh, I'm imitating him badly. But it was scary as hell. Kirchner was scarier than I could ever be. Engage emergency power. Roger. Uh, emergency power on. Still negative function. Operate manual override. Roger. 
he was Major Kong off and on the set. He didn't change. He didn't change a thing. You know, his temperament, his, his, his language, and his behavior. For James Earl Jones, who is appearing in The Merchant of Venice with George C. Scott, Kubrick provides the opportunity to make his screen debut. He had come to see George C. Scott. He, wanted, he knew he wanted to use George as the Air Force General. And he, I happened to be playing Prince of Morocco. And I think all along he wanted to have the bomber crew made up of all the ethnics, you know, a Jewish guy, black guy, an Irish guy, Canadian guy, and so on. When I read the script, Zoggy was the only one to question the possibilities that this is a security test, that we were not supposed to bomb Russia. Uh, still negative function. The Teleflex drive cable must be sheared away. Fire the explosive bolt! Roger. Kubrick uses a series of models to simulate the B-52's flight toward the Soviet Union, but back projection footage is needed to create the illusion of flying at high altitude. A second unit is dispatched to the Arctic Circle. The plane used to freeze up inside. It was all be white. If you touched it with your finger, you'd burn your finger. That's how cold it was when we were actually doing it. And one night they wouldn't give us any heating for the airplane at all for the and uh, we had to leave our cameras there. And when we opened the cameras, the film was just like dust. It just flaked away like that, and the spirit levels had all burst. The battle scene, I mean, Stanley wanted it played as, as real as possible, you know. In other words, he wanted handheld cameras. First of all, we wanted it to look different. And we wanted to, to use uh, orthochromatic stock if we could get it. Oh, I did find, I found 70,000 feet at the RAF of Stanmore and we used it. Now I dressed up with full uniform on and so did Stanby. We both took our reflex cameras and we went in the long grass. We mustn't let ourselves be exposed to machine gun fire or anything. And we did the whole battle sequence like that handheld. In uh, Insider number 95, uh, Gil Taylor is, in, is interviewed after from his experience on filming the original Star Wars and he had filmed Dr. Strangelove says uh, he found Taylor... Taylor found Lucas to be extremely quiet. Surely you jest. <laughs> he says, Lucas employed a documentary style of filming and gave the cast and crew very little direction. He admitted himself that he preferred to direct the movie in the cutting room. In this respect, Taylor found Lucas to be similar to Stanley Kubrick, with whom the cinematographer had worked on Dr. Strangelove. George is very much within himself, and Kubrick was the same way. Wow. So we've got two inward collected individuals that really express themselves through the editing through the pacing and that's a really neat kind of counterpoint that i wouldn't have seen between the two of them yeah you imagine what their conversations would be like because when they're with other filmmakers you can shut them up so and they've both got so many ideas mm -hmm. that when they're just in a comfortable zone with no pressure I'm sure it would be insane yeah. what they're talking about. But I'm sure it's uh, sealed lips and absolutely... Yeah. I mean, I could kind of see uh, Kubrick, especially the way he loved to keep his set pieces proprietary and you know he wanted True. to keep everything very... Uh, his know, archive so. was only matched or rivaled by the Lucasfilm archive. <laughs> so, okay, so. yeah. Those personality traits definitely do. Uh, Both kind of ended up with their own home studio, right? Where they That's did all true. their work, kept their family around. Both of them were extremely 
private family men. You'd never let the press talk anything about their family or into who they were uh, when the kids were still kids and both shy away from the press, but also pretty unassuming and, and certainly big egos, but also self, self-effacing, self-deprecating humor as well. And also both of them ended up with Steven Spielberg as their best friend. Now, how funny is that? When you have two very similar personalities, when you have somebody with the exact same interests, who's the exact opposite personality, yep. so that gravity towards to the point where Lucas was, you know, just giving him properties, you know, intellectual properties that would turn out to be long-lasting yeah. series favorites, uh, just because he, he thought he would be able to handle it better. George and I had planned this vacation together. He was going to get away from Star Wars opening, which was has become a tradition with both of us over the years. And uh, I joined him in Hawaii, um, and we were just waiting for the grosses to come in, kind of like you know waiting for election returns. And uh, it turned out to be <laughs> a landslide for George Lucas. And George, at that point, just I think gushed a sigh of relief, and then changed the subject from Star Wars to what I was doing next. And I said, well, you know what? I've always wanted to direct a James Bond picture. And George, so I, I got that beat. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I have a better idea. It's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I sat down and kind of told him a story about this archaeologist and how it was like a Saturday matinee serial, and he got in one mess after another, and he just said, fantastic, let's do this. I first heard about AI actually just after the time that Stanley Kubrick's death was announced. And like many people, I was a huge Kubrick fan. I heard about this project that he had apparently been working on. I'd heard of the involvement of Steven Spielberg in, in that project. There was some evidence from Stanley's AI archives about Gigolo Joe, but not a lot of substance. And, and I was like an archaeologist going through every piece of paper trying to find out what did Stanley intend, what was the story he wanted to tell, because my job was to honor his story without forgetting about myself. I wanted to also be able to include my own sensibilities. The best story of an interaction between Lucas and Kubrick has got to be something referenced in the great Brian J. Jones book, George Lucas Alive. He's talking to Howard Kazanjian about who they're going to hire for Return of the Jedi, and they look at Eye of the Needle and they think that uh, maybe Richard Marquand is the guy. But he also talked to someone else, David Lynch. Whoa. (laughs) I was asked uh, by George uh, to come up to see him and talk to him about directing which would would be the third Star Wars and I had next door to zero interest but I always admired George you know George is a guy that does what he loves and I do what I love the difference is what George loves makes hundreds of billions of dollars. So I thought I should go up and at least visit with him. 
and it was incredible. I had to go to this building in LA first and get a special credit card and I had to get a special keys and a letter came and a map. And um, then I went into the airport and I flew up and then they had a rental car all ready for me and this uh, keys and you know everything was set and I was to drive to this place and I came into an office and there was George. And he, he talked with me for a little bit and then he said, I wanna show you something. Now right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. So he took me upstairs and he showed me these things called Wookiees. And now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. <laughs> and he showed me many animals and different things. Then he took me for a ride in his Ferrari for a lunch. And George is kind of short, so he was, his seat was way back and he was almost laying down in the car. We were flying through this little town up in Northern California. We went to a restaurant, not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was, was salad. <laughs> <laughs> then I got a really, uh, an almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home. And I, even before I got home, I kind of crawled into a phone booth and phoned my agent. I said, there's no way, I know no way I can do this. He said, David, 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 calm down. You don't have to do this. And um, so George, bless his heart, I told him on the phone the next day that he should direct it. It's his film. He invented everything about it. But he doesn't really love directing. And so someone else did direct that film, but um, I, did, I called my lawyer and told him that I wasn't gonna do it, and he said, you just lost, I don't know how many millions of dollars. Man, could you imagine David Lynch doing Return of the Jedi and then on the flip of that going and <laughs> doing uh, Dune? Yeah. Wow. That would have been, that would turn him from like, you know, a freak kind of, uh, Indie. Yeah, fringe director to a uh, hit sci-fi, you know, blockbuster maker. That would be so cool. It'd be insane. And yeah, and his uninhibited Dune, what that could have been. Ooh. The reason that George Lucas offered Return of the Jedi to David Lynch is because that was Stanley Kubrick's suggestion. I mean, the only thing that's better than the thought of David Lynch directing Return of the Jedi is the fact that it was Stanley Kubrick's idea. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine what the Ewoks would have been like? Oh, my Lord. On Endor, everything is fine. You've got your human sacrifice, and I've got mine. Yeah, definitely would have been a different tone poem. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. And if you can believe it. It's a Friday once again!
Clavius Pace. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Get the stick! Get the stick! Get the stick! <laughs>